You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Everything you've always wanted to know about abstinence-only sex education. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Ms. Lori Chayton, the Director of the Reproductive Rights Project for the Roger Baldwin Foundation of the ACLU of Illinois and a member of the Board of Directors of the Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health. Ms. Chayton has been involved in numerous court challenges to laws that impede women's access to reproductive health care and has played a leading role in numerous public advocacy projects, including the Illinois Campaign for Reproductive Justice. Welcome, Ms. Chayton. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, can you start by describing what abstinence-only education is, what it includes, and more to the point, what it doesn't include? Under federal law, an abstinence education program must have its exclusive purpose, teaching abstinence, meaning there can't be any discussion of safe and healthy sexual practices. These programs are required to teach that the expected standard is that sex will occur only in the context of heterosexual marriage, that sexual conduct outside of marriage has harmful psychological and physical effects, and that bearing children outside of marriage is harmful to the parent and the child. So the programs must discourage the use of contraception. They're only allowed to discuss contraception to highlight failure rates in preventing both pregnancy and STIs. These programs have, are the only kinds of sex education programs that the federal government funds, and the federal government has funded these programs to the tune of $1.5 billion federal dollars over the last 25 years, with most of that being spent in the past 10 years. So it's been around for 25 years. I was wondering how long these programs have been in existence. They've been around for 25 years, though the funding has increased dramatically during the Bush administration. And we're at a point now where the government is spending about $200 million a year, a little less than $200 million in federal funds, plus some required state matching funds. You know, you talk about discouraging sex education. Could you actually define what they mean by sex? Is this just intercourse or does it go beyond intercourse? These programs are only permitted to teach about abstaining from all sexual conduct. And even some of them even go so far as to guide young people to avoid kissing because kissing can lead to other things. Okay. So that really does expand our definition of sex as most people think of it. So what, if anything, is taught about contraception in terms of types of contraception, effectiveness, can the teachers who are leading these programs answer student questions about contraception? The only thing that these programs can do if they're receiving this federal money is to talk about contraception in terms of its failure rates. And research shows, of course, that people who've participated in abstinence-only programs are less likely to use contraception, including condoms, because they haven't learned about it, and the only thing they have learned is about failure rates. So these programs really jeopardize the health of sexually active teens, and they leave those who become sexually active later unprepared. Well, Given that if they're not learning about contraception, clearly there are going to be some pregnancies that result of all of this. So what does the curriculum include about pregnancy, abortion? Does it talk about specific information about the choices that someone might have to make, the risks of carrying a pregnancy to term, the risks of an abortion? Does it go there at all? Actually, to the contrary, the curricula are required to teach, they're, tri- they're required to teach that childbearing out of wedlock is harmful to the child and the parent, but they're prohibited from discussing abortion and from discussing contraception, again, except to emphasize failure rates. There was a 2004 congressional report that concluded that many of these federally funded abstinence only until marriage 
charge curricula misrepresent the effectiveness of condoms in preventing sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy by exaggerating their failure rates. And while two of the federal abstinence-only programs, the AFLA and the CBA programs, do contain language about requiring medical accuracy, this language was long ignored by the government and only recently has the Department of Health and Human Services even asked programs to certify that they be accurate. So, all right, clearly the information that's taught is not based on scientific fact. It's not medically accurate. Isn't there some legislation that would require accuracy of information? Again, the only ones of these of these statutes and these regulations that provide for the funding of federal abstinence-only programs that include the requirement of medical accuracy are these two programs I just mentioned. And yeah. in those cases, the federal government isn't imposing that. There have been bills proposed both in Congress and in state legislatures that would require that sex education be taught in a medically accurate, age-appropriate fashion. And we here at the ACLU have been pushing an effort to get legislation like that passed in Illinois so that every public school in Illinois would be required to teach comprehensive, medically accurate, and age-appropriate sex education. Thus far, neither on the federal level nor the state level have those bills passed. So that leads to my next question about how widespread are these programs? Is this in every public school, in only some communities? Do the schools or the parents get any kind of say as to whether they participate in this program? Abstinence-only until marriage programs are increasingly replacing other forms of sex education in the schools. And the reason, of course, is because of this vast amount of federal funding that's been made available to support them. And as I said before, there's no federal funding that supports programs that emphasize both the importance of waiting to have sex while also providing accurate, age-appropriate, and complete information about how to use contraception. So if the school district wants to get funding, they have to utilize these programs? If they want to get federal funding, these are the programs they have to utilize. And once a school accepts this money, it's required to teach sexuality education in accordance with the requirements set by the federal government that I discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. And there's actually been some research that shows that between 1995 and 2002, there was a significant decline in the rates of adolescents who received formal instruction about methods of birth control. And at this point, only one-third of adolescents have received any instruction regarding contraception. And what's interesting about that is that the research also shows that the vast majority of U.S. parents, teachers, and the leading medical groups believe that teens should receive complete and accurate information about delaying sexual activity and contraception. Mm -hmm. Those groups include the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, ACOG, the Society for Adolescent Medicine. They all advocate for comprehensive sexuality education because that is the best way to help our youth make healthy choices when sure. it comes to sexual conduct. And, you know, it seems like some youth are going to be at greater risk than others, particularly if these are in school districts that are dependent upon this funding. It stands to reason that it's going to be in the poor school districts that really can't turn it down. And is that the case? Do you find that there are some groups that are at higher risk than others? Definitely in communities where the school districts do not have the privilege of having the tax dollars they need to create their own curricula, to have the freedom to create their own curricula. So the reason, again, that these programs are increasing is because the money is there. This is what the Bush administration has used as the carrot to get school districts to teach 
only abstinence. And of course, these are very expensive programs. And I'd like to talk about the impact of these very expensive programs. Now, according to the Guttmacher Institute reports, 47% of United States high school youth report having had sexual intercourse. And by age 19, 70% of teens are sexually active. Now, you mentioned before that the Bush administration actually funded a study to see how well these programs are working. Can you talk a little bit further about this congressionally mandated report and what it found regarding the impact of sexual activity in these teens? Well, the first of these reports actually came out in 2004. Congress issued a report that found widespread distortion of information and misrepresentations, as well as dangerous gender stereotyping in these federally funded programs. This report showed that more than 80% of these programs contain false and misleading information. They misrepresent the effectiveness of condoms in preventing sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy, and they contain false information about the risks of abortion. They also blur religion and science, and they promote gender stereotypes. So then in 2007, a rigorous multi-year scientific evaluation authorized by Congress presented clear evidence that the programs just don't work. This is referred to commonly as the Mathematica study conducted by Mathematica. And the study looked at 2,000 students and found that abstinence-only program participants were just as likely to have sex before marriage as teens who did not participate in these programs. And program participants were shown to have first intercourse at the same mean age and to have the same number of sexual partners as teens who did not participate. Of course, the difference is that these teens had less information to assist them in making healthy decisions when they did become sexually active. Now we have some clear evidence from these congressionally mandated reports that federally funded abstinence-only marriage programs are not effective in stopping or even significantly delaying teen sex. So as a result of that, has there been any decrease in these federally funded abstinence programs? I mean, what do they do with this information? They have essentially ignored it. There has been no reduction in the federal funding. Congress has continued to support these programs to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And additional research has come out further demonstrating that these programs are ineffective in their goal of preventing sexual conduct. And how do they justify that? That is quite unclear. I don't think that they actually have attempted to justify it. They simply keep funding it. Well, I would like to thank my guest, Lori Chayton, who's given us accurate information and insight into the impact of abstinence-only education. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to ReachMD.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, mm-hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. 
It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. <laughs> Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly Sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.